on the very idea, a philosophy podcast. Hello, everyone. Yeah, so recently I'm trying to sound a bit more chill in these um, intros because uh, sometimes I just uh, come over sounding overly caffeinated and uh, sticky in that uh, S-C-H-I-T-C-K sense of the word. Trying to avoid that, but, you know, sometimes I like to do it. In wintertime, I'm usually pretty low energy, so I want my uh, intros to uh, reflect that, so I'm re-recording this one. Now, we're in the middle of the winter. It's uh, 2021, January. I don't know, you're probably not going to get to hear this in, in January, but anyway, thought I'd let you know. Uh, and uh, it gets pretty cold here in uh, the Kansai area of um, Japan. It's kind of a gray, drab winter, but occasionally you get uh, a bit of snow. And snow can be really wonderful for me because it's quite psychologically cleansing to get that uh, that crisp coldness of snow. Anyway, here what we're gonna, here's what we're going to do. We're going to go on to the um, uh, game. We're going to go on to the game. Now, I'm going to say a quote uh, from a philosopher, and you try to guess who is the author of said quote. And I just grabbed a book here. So, and this is the quote that I found. For what does it mean to discover that a sentence does not make sense? And what does this mean if I mean something uh, by it? Surely it must make sense? The first presumably means not to um, be misled by the appearance of a sentence and to um, investigate its application in the language game. And if I mean something by it, does that mean something like if I can imagine something in connection with it? An image often leads on to a further application. I'll say that one more time. For what does it mean to discover that a sentence does not make sense? And what does this mean if I mean something by actually it must make sense? The first presumably means not to be misled by the appearance of a sentence and to um, investigate its application in the language game. And if I mean something by it, does that mean something like if I can imagine something in connection with it? Uh, an image often leads on to a further application. Mm, who said those words? I think language game might give you a hint. Okay, let me count down. Five, four, three, two, one. The philosopher in question is none other than Ludwig Wittgenstein. And in this one, the book I grabbed off the shelf is uh, Zettel. Zettel. Fortunately, a book that I never really made my way through, but I like to uh, read bits and pieces at time. Anyway, that's some Wittgenstein for you. Let's get on to the main of the episode. Today, I want to uh, get uh, all biological with you. We'll be talking about uh, biology in particular, uh, evolutionary biology, and trying to come to terms with a fight between philosopher Mary Midgley and uh, biologist Richard Dawkins. And, uh, hey, did I say fight? Well, yeah, 
He should have said debate, shouldn't he? Well, yes, I did say fight because debate would be too soft a word for this particular uh, dust-up. Back in the late 70s and early 80s, Mitchley and Dawkins went at it in the pages of the journal Philosophy. Philosophy, the uh, journal, not the discipline. The journal that uh, they must have named in a fit of modesty. But I guess you don't need modesty when when you're the journal, when your journal is produced by the Royal Institute of Philosophy with all that power of mind and queen behind you. And uh, these people from the Royal Institute of Philosophy, they very generously decided to put some of their greatest hits articles free online. Uh, during uh, the corona shutdown um, so that we may read during this time of crisis. So it's very nice and generous, uh, and uh, which is great. Uh, just Google Royal Institute of Philosophy and free articles and you should come across it, uh, which is how I did. I think it's the first article available, um, the one between Midgley, the one from Midgley and the reply from Dawkins. So to give the briefest of summaries, so Mary Midgley... Uh, She attacked Richard Dawkins' book, The Selfish Gene, um, shortly after it was published in the pages of philosophy. And uh, she went after J.L. Mackey a bit, too, in 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 her uh, her review of the book. In October 1979, October 1979, late 70s, and uh, in October 1981, in the same journal, Dawkins makes a reply to her attack by defending his work. And it was kind of crazy. There was there was a two year reply between the critique and the response, and uh, you know in our era of Twitter and constant online publishing, two years between critique and response seems uh, kind of mind boggling. A tortoise pace, yeah. Yet that's uh, how it was back when you had to know a guy with a paper mill in order to get your ideas out there. So, first, you know, what was a selfish gene? Of course, I'm sure you've heard of the book. Most of you probably know. Uh, It was Dawkins' book where he said that evolution uh, primarily occurs at the uh, level of genes. Genes are the basic unit of evolution. And uh, not individuals, not groups. And these genes manage manifest in the form of organisms and using these organisms as mere mechanisms and even programming our brains in order to ensure that survival and uh, the ability to pass on their genes. So, wait a sec. So, did I just say genes pass on their genes or do they just pass on themselves or replications of the cells? So, uh, I think it's the replication one. So, evolution occurs through the natural selection of genes, not on individuals or species or groups or, you know, what have you. In the words of biologist William Hamilton, despite the principle of survival of the fittest, the the ultimate uh, criterion which determines whether a gene X will spread is not whether the behavior is to the benefit of the behavior, but whether it is to the benefit of gene X. Even altruistic actions are not based on group benefit, as was theorized previously in biology, but rather uh, they're best understood as being to the benefit of passing on the gene of the altruist. Altruism helps the number of genes passed on globally. 
as as opposed to the number of genes passed on by a particular individual. Dawkins, in the book, claims that most cases, any cases, not sure of which, of altruism can be explained by gene selfishness. And he attacks group selection in particular as an explanation. He says it's not necessary. He says it's extraneous. Anything that you think you can be explained at the group level can actually using mathematical models, be more, I guess according to Occam's razor, more simply explained at the gene level. So, Mary Midgley... She did not like this book. Not at all. Mary Midgley, uh, she's a British philosopher. Um, she worked, I think, at Newcastle University. Newcastle University. And uh, she was primarily interested in science, particularly biology, ethics, and animal rights. Now, I'm going to open up with her words, uh, open up in a strange place, uh, with her final words of her paper, Attacking Dawkins, that she includes in a footnote. But it's a very interesting footnote, and I think it's a good place to start. Nice way to set the tone. Midgley says, for a fuller discussion of sociobiological ideas in their more modest Wilsonian form, see my, Midgley's, book, Beast and Man. This is uh, pretty hilarious because E.O. Wilson of sociobiology fame, he was uh, quite uh, controversial in his own right. So this was more than a gentle stabbing. Yeah. Back to um, Midgley. Up till now, I have not attended to Dawkins, thinking it unnecessary to break a butterfly upon a torture wheel. That's yeah, a nice, kind of a cruel way to talk about why she hasn't paid attention to Dawkins before. So there you go. Uh, nastiness uh, of uh, classifying Dawkins as the intellectual butterfly. So back to Midgley. Uh, but uh, J.L. Mackey's article uh, is not the only indication I have lately met of serious attention paid to Dawkins' fantasies. What this shows is that in the absence of a serious and realistic psychology of motive, people will clutch at straws. Moral philosophers in particular have so thoroughly and deliberately starved themselves of the natural facts needed to deal with their problems that many of them are reduced to a weak state in which they lack resistance to even the most obvious absurdities. Anti-naturalist diets must be altogether given up if this sort of thing is to be avoided. So, it seems that uh, Midgley was inspired to take up arms against Dawkins by his growing popularity amongst philosophers at the time. In particular, the Australian philosopher J.L. Mackey, who advocated for a type of philosophical egoism. Uh, we talked about him in the error theory episode, if anyone's uh, interested. And uh, it's interesting that she noted that the dying of philosophical theorizing about human nature, philosophers starving themselves of natural facts, that's what she said, 
uh, has led us to the adoption of Dawkins' brand of evolutionary psychology. You know, we can't rely on these grand theories of human nature anymore. So we have to rely on something to tell us, you know, what are people like? What are people basically like? And so we must turn to evolutionary psychology. Well, not must, but some people do. But that perhaps a renewal of investigations into the content of human nature, according to Michelet, or even its possibility, would cause people to turn away from evolutionary psychology and then towards it. Um, it'd be interesting, you know, to have like kind of a renewed philosophical investigation of human nature. Charles Taylor kind of does that, uh, but uh, it's a lot less prevalent than it was before, uh, you know, in the 17th, no, sorry, 18th, 19th centuries. So what does Midgley say about Dawkins' theory itself? Well, first, she seems bothered by his use of metaphor, as a lot of people are in his descriptions of gene behavior. Come to think of it, applying the term behavior, behavior, that term, to genes itself is also, you know, somewhat a metaphor. Genes, they don't really behave, do they? I'm sure genes don't behave in the way worms, birds, and humans do. In her own words, genes cannot be selfish or unselfish any more than atoms, atoms, can be jealous. Elephants, abstract, or biscuits, teleological. <laughs> biscuits, teleological. She's a really great writer. Uh, but uh, Dawkins, uh, Richard Dawkins' book, The Selfish Gene, has succeeded in confusing a number of people about it, about these use of metaphors, including Mr. J.L. Mackey. What Mackey welcomes in Dawkins is a new biological-looking kind of support for philosophical egoism. You know, J.L. Mackey was the philosophical egoist. Um, if this support came from Dawkins producing important new facts or good new interpretations of old facts about animal life, this would be, this could be very interesting. End quote. That's the end of her quote. Midgley then moves on to look at Dawkins' notion of reciprocal altruism. Reciprocal altruism is based on the idea that if, you know, I help you, it is uh, because uh, you have helped me or believe that you would uh, help me in the future. She rightly points out that this is, in fact, not uh, altruism at all, but bargaining. As altruism, by its dictionary definition, has the idea of helping others without necessarily expecting anything in return as its core idea. She examines a just-so story that Dawkins develops to explain his reciprocal altruism. These just-so stories are, you know, kind of, they're wonderful, but they're just kind of um, exercises of thought. Dawkins thinks of a mini-society of birds who have genetic strains that determine their ability to cooperate, which results in a population divided into three types of characters. These birds can be divided into the suckers, who help everybody indiscriminately, the cheats, who accept help from everybody and never return it, and grudgers who refuse help only to those who have previously refused it to them. In her words, these strategies are supposed each to be controlled by a single gene, and the help in question is assumed to be essential for survival. In this absurdly abstract and genetically quite impossible situation, Dawkins concludes that cheats and grudgers would exterminate suckers, and grudgers might do best of all. In the words of Mary Midgley. So, 
In other words, by using this example, Dawkins means to demonstrate the lack of genetic fitness in the uh, suckers gene, and uh, that grudgers, the natural contractualists amongst us, would be genetically the most fit. Mitchley here somewhat misquotes Dawkins, as Dawkins never says that cheats and grudgers would exterminate suckers. Rather, Dawkins says that in a society where there were only cheats and suckers, the cheats uh, would be more likely to uh, pass on their own genes. It's quite different. But in a society of all three types of characters, the grudgers would come out as the most fit. And uh, yeah, it's a little different. Huh? Now, it's important to ask a question. Is there any such thing as uh, true altruism in uh, nature? If the dictionary definition of altruism is doing uh, something and asking and expecting absolutely nothing in return, then altruism probably, you know, doesn't exist in, in nature. Likewise, it's probably very rare amongst humans. Let's take a simple case, you know, holding the door open for someone that you would likely never that you likely never see again. You uh, know that that person will probably never be able to repay you. So you're not uh, expecting anything explicit in return, but you are expecting some more subtle uh, implied things. You expect that person to uh, at least have a minimal form of respect for you. You expect that person to who not immediately try to um, lock you from passing through the door yourself. You don't expect to be spat on. So you may not expect that person or any other person in the future to hold the door open for you, but you do expect not to be you know, maligned in any way for your uh, good deed. Likewise, if you make an anonymous donation to a hospital, you might feel very differently about the hospital if the chief administrator for the hospital comes on TV the next day slandering you. Or if that hospital engages in ethically questionable practices. Of course, the administrator doesn't know you donated the money. But you expect that the hospital is run by good people who will, you know, put your money to good use. You don't uh, hold the door open for murderers running away. You know? Perhaps there are a rarefied few people who have absolutely no expectations of civil or moral behavior from those that they are helping. But even you know, a Christ-like figure wouldn't, couldn't work the light ladles of a soup kitchen to feed the hungry if they are repeatedly kicking him in the shins um, for uh, recreation. Absolute pure no expectation altruism would likely look like madness, like a Ned Flanders on uh, steroids. And that's not to say everything is a bargain, as reciprocal altruism suggests. Um, one doesn't expect the exact behavior in return or its value equivalent. We expect minimal civil or moral behavior in return. At least, you know. And usually we expect a little more that like-minded people to ourselves will note that we are good people. And also, usually we engage in generous behavior for future generous behavior. Buying rounds of drinks or driving people to the airport, you know. But if we care too much about the exact reciprocity of those exchanges, we'll risk losing our connections with the people in those engagements. If I expect five drives worth 10 kilometers each because I drove you 50 kilometers to the airport... That's socially awkward, to say the least. Perfectly rational in a reciprocal altruism scheme, but humans just don't behave that way, and I'm probably sure that deer and geese don't either. Not just for the reason that they like to avoid math. Our dislike of engaging in absolute calculated reciprocity is something that evolutionary biology may have a hard time accounting for. The ledger doesn't return to zero at the end of anyone's life. 
and uh, we don't usually think of those who have received more than they have given to be you know all a particular all a particularly great. Instead, we um, aim for an overall balance, but not an exact balance, just one that gives us peace of mind. But evolutionary biology must uh, make phenomena studyable, and the best way to do this is to quantify biological behavior into calculable points of evolutionary fitness. The general aboutness of actual human and most likely animal behavior that falls under reciprocity you know, just doesn't lend itself well to quantification. And when it does, it comes out awkward as a society of reciprocal altruists or explicitly or innately, should I say genetically, calculate our moral engagements as transactions. But, you know, Mitchell says uh, the grudger, the ideal genetic type in the Dawkins schema, He's supposed to, he or she's supposed to view as enemies all those who have ever failed to return his help in the past, all those who have not returned his help, and as friends, all those who have returned his help. This principle, uh, you know, if we think of life according to this principle, Mitchell notes that uh, a man's employer would usually be his best friend because he always returns with money, the labor he put in, and his children always his enemies. You know, we give so much to children and it is at least, you know, a good 20, 25 years before we expect much in return um, is unknown in the animal world. It's a great line. Altruism is transitive long before it is reciprocal in Midgley's words. I just want to read that again because it's so amazing. Yeah, This principle uh, would be one where which a man's employer would usually be his best friend and his children always his enemies. This uh, system is unknown in the animal world, the system of reciprocal altruism. Okay. It would also seem to be in the interest of any individual in any group to keep altruists around. You know, having an altruist as a neighbor, the pure fictional type of Dawkins or the real actual one of nature, would help your reproductive chances massively. You would expend less energy on getting food, maintaining health and security, and have more time for child rearing. So developing genes that in turn sought to improve the reproductive chances of your, your kinder neighbors would therefore give your own reproductive chances a massive boost. Most mammals are social and must be for a reason. Certainly hunting and security offer the obvious reasons. And these, as far as I can tell, require motives that resemble sharing more often than they do resemble selfishness. So here's one interesting bit I came across. It's from Wikipedia. An experiment, an experiment by William Muir compared egg productivity in hens, showing that a hyper-aggressive strain had been produced through individual selection, leading to many fatal attacks after only six generations. By implication, it could be argued that group selection must have been acting to prevent this in real life outside of the scientist situation. So extreme selfishness just is disruptive to social life. So let's stop there. And next time, get into a few more of Midgley's jabs and Dawkins' defense and some other stuff. Anyway, thank you for listening. On the very idea, a philosophy podcast.